you would take your Bibles or use the bulletin and turn to Genesis chapter 4. Our text this morning will be Genesis chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 26. Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 through 26. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahuyael, and Mahuyael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wife, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born, a son was also born, and he named his, called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this word. The events happened ages ago, but God, they are written down for our benefit today. And God, may we see the true sign of your people, the people who gather together to worship your name as we go through this text. May your spirit give us all the wisdom and understanding, and we pray that it would shape us and mold us more and more into the image of your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm sure most of you are familiar with those gather signs found in many kitchens and living rooms. Some of you might even have one posted somewhere in your house. I don't know when they started or who came up with them. Maybe it was the fixer-upper craze with the Gaines family. Um, but it would appear that they continue to be a home decor staple. Now, growing up, my mom never had a gather sign posted somewhere. We likely predated this trend. However, this did not mean we lacked a regular gathering. The dinner table for my family was that place. Despite growing kids and constantly busy schedules, we met together every evening at the dinner table. If practices or games or work ran late, dinner waited until everyone, or mostly everyone, was home. If there were activities scheduled later on the calendar, dinner was plated earlier so that everyone could eat, meet, and then run. If friends came over, an additional chair was placed at the table with the expectation that said friend would sit in that chair for dinner. Even as we grew up, I can confidently say that five out of the seven nights a week, the six members of my family sat around the table. We ate together. We visited one another. This was our constant in an ever-changing and growing and increasingly rapid-paced life. Some nights the table was filled with laughter. Some nights there was tension or arguments that kind of lingered from earlier on in the afternoon. 
Some nights the, the food uh, didn't even have a chance to sit on the plates fast enough until the plates were emptied and people were off and running to whatever it is they had to be. And for my mom, there were very few exceptions for missing dinner. You needed a really good reason to be excused. We as a family ate together. Our friends knew it. Some even wished that their families did the same. And I don't say that boastingly, that's just what they would confess to us. For us, it was normal, even if to them it seemed eh, a little bit unusual. It was never actually stated, but my family kind of operated under this, the family that eats together stays together. And I'm fairly certain if you were to ask each of my siblings, they have a similar practice in their homes when it comes to eating together at the dinner table. Genesis 4, 17-26 is a breakdown of two families. They are related to one another by blood, and yet they could not be any more different. The first family contributes to and adjusts to a rapidly changing world. They flow with it in full embrace of it. The other family, early on, sets a standard for themselves and their posterity. They will meet together to worship. Together they will cry out to the Lord, sing his praises, seek his face. They will be the family that worships together, the family of God. And it is here in Genesis 4, way back almost at the beginning of time, where we see the first formal worship gathering of God's family. And we observe the precedent set that day that the family of God is the family that worships together. In the midst of an ever-changing world, the gathering of the family of God to worship does not change. I hope you can see then why this text is as important today as it is when Moses originally recorded it. Meeting together as God's family is constantly being threatened. It is threatened from outside forces and powers, both spiritual and physical. It is threatened by forces from within. It is even threatened internally by the ever-changing attitudes, passions, and pursuits of our individual hearts. We need to be reminded, better yet, we need to be called back to this defining feature of the family of God. It is the family that worships together. The outline is printed in your bulletin, and we're going to break this passage down in three points. First, we're going to see that the world is growing, then that God is good, and his people are gathering. And I pray that it both challenges and encourages each of us to continue meeting together with God's people week in and week out until our bridegroom returns. We begin first with the world is growing. We see this through the line of Cain. The world progresses and develops far beyond what it once was from Genesis chapter 3. This progress and this development that we see in verses 17 through 24 are both positive and negative. The contributions of Cain's descendants are both a celebration and a lamentation. There is celebration because there's great cultivation. 
Cain's family does their part to fulfill the cultural mandate of Genesis chapter 1. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. Briefly, let's, uh, let's run through the list of family accomplishments in these handful of verses. We know that Cain is a farmer by trade. When he and Abel came and brought offering of sacrifices to the Lord, he brought the fruits of the ground. But we also see he builds the first city. Cities were and remain places of growth, of business, of enjoyment and pleasure. We also see the first shepherds and the keepers of livestock. This likely included new and growing developments of farming and agriculture, even animal husbandry. We also see music and musical instruments coming through the line of Cain. So whatever band or musical uh, group you prefer today, it finds its roots here back in Genesis chapter 4, with the lyre and the pipe. We also see the first smiths turning raw metal into powerful tools, vital for industry and progress. Before we're tempted to just kind of cast these away, these are significantly and incredibly impressive developments. Cain's line introduces, if you will, a whole new world in a relatively brief period of time. Our world today is similar. Studies are showing that my kids, who are three and one, are growing up in a vastly different period than our teenagers grew up in. That's less than a 10-year difference. Things are moving that quickly. I mean, just look at the world of medicine. Once risky surgeries that no one would dare to do are now becoming more routine. Diseases once thought to be indestructible or incurable are being cured or at least subsided. The device that you carry in your pockets or some of you have on your wrist, too, is a testament to our ever-developing and changing world. The technology that is in it used to require an entire room to hold it. It's not too great a stretch to say we are living in a kind of golden age. And much of the progress and advancement has been to our benefit. I was just telling someone on Friday that while today's problems are serious, I would still take the developments of medicine, running water, and electricity over what used to be. I like being clean. I like having lights that turn on with a flip of a switch. We can praise God for his common grace to all mankind revealed in this way of our world developing and progressing and advancing. But before we move completely to celebration, we also need to address that there is great lamentation because there is great corruption in the line of Cain. Sin and depravity advance and increase through his family. Again, let's briefly run through this list of family deviancy, if you will. We know Cain's a murderer. He killed his brother in cold blood. He's also proud and self-exalting. He names the city after his son, Enoch, attributing his success to himself. I've produced a son, now I've produced a city. Look at me. Then there is Lamech. And let's not sugarcoat it. Lamech is a bad guy. He introduces polygamy, defying God's one flesh design back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Polygamy would grow into many other forms of sexual deviancy 
that would plague both the world and God's people to this day. Lamech also one-ups Cain, his forefather. He also kills in cold blood and then celebrates it, commemorates his act with a song that he walks into the door and sings for his wives. And in this song, he adopts the promise of the Lord's protection of Cain in verse 15 as his own license to kill in the name of vengeance, pride, and strength. Lamech is right up there with some of the most despised characters in Scripture. He is the antithesis of what man was originally created for. He has zero regard for life and the imago Dei, the image of God in mankind. He worships himself. He lacks any interest in glorifying and enjoying the Lord. And I doubt any of you need convincing that this kind of corruption also describes our world. Ecclesiastes is correct. There is nothing new under the sun. Sin, evil, depravity of every kind and style and level are thriving today. Like Lamech, we kill at every stage of life. We kill in the womb and call it freedom. We kill as age advances and sickness comes and we call it mercy. We kill in life's prime and call it survival. Just this week, I read a horrible news article about how the Dutch government is seeking to legalize euthanasia for kids ages 1 to 12 if they have an illness that doesn't improve. All it takes is a joint signature between parent and doctor or a 16-year-old kid who feels it's time. Our world is a world with an expertise in, even a thirst for killing, like the world Lamech introduces here in Genesis 4. It is us who determine when life is valuable, when it's worth keeping. This is the progress that we have earned for ourselves. And sadly, it doesn't stop with murder. Sexual deviancy is everywhere. Purity is ridiculed and treated as oppressive. Marriage has been stripped of value by both heterosexuals and homosexuals. Sex is not for marriage. It is an appetite to be fed in whatever form and whatever time I deem best. And all of the damaging consequences are either blatantly ignored or blamed upon someone else. And the list goes on. Our world is corrupted with pride, self-worship, greed, racism, trafficking, debauchery, lying, rejection of authority. The line from Genesis 4 to Romans 1 to our day is pretty bold and pretty clear. And it should rightly make us cry out, come quickly, Lord Jesus, all the more fervently. Matthew Henry writes of Cain's line that it is a line void of the Lord. He says, here were fathers of shepherds and a father of musicians, but not a father of the faithful. Here was one to teach in brass and iron, but none to teach the good knowledge of the Lord. Here were devices how to be rich, how to be mighty, and how to be merry, but nothing of God, nor of fear and service among them. Replace shepherds with athletes, musicians with doctors, brass and iron with technology and engineering, and you have an accurate description of the world in which we live. We have progress void of holiness. 
improvement without any interest in the Lord our Creator. This is the, the world in which we are active contributors as well, because we sin too. So even as we must call evil for what it is, evil, we must also repent of it in every form we see it in our own hearts. For this is not who we are as the family of God. These traits in Genesis 4, 17 through 24 are not our traits. So as the world grows in both progress and its depravity, may we not grow in its likeness. But however, in this text, we also see that despite this growing world, God is good. As the world rages in the name of progress, the Lord displays his faithfulness to his people. You kind of have to wonder what is going on in the hearts and the minds of Adam and Eve as they observe Cain's growing family. As much as there is to be proud of with all these accomplishments, the growing corruption likely brought a great sense of shame and sorrow, maybe even regret. It is clear that Cain is not going to be the serpent-crushing offspring promised in Genesis 3. If anything, he's aligned himself with the serpent. Abel, the righteous and accepted one, he's dead. Things seem hopeless. And I think you catch a glimpse of that when Eve says, instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And it is into this sorrow that the Lord provides a tangible sign of his goodness. He says, it says, and Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. Robbed of essentially two of their children, one via death and the other via judgment, God gives Adam and Eve another child. I know it's obvious, but the Lord blesses the union of his husband and wife with a child. We should not take for granted the simple and natural ways that God demonstrates his goodness to his people. We don't know if Adam and Eve were barren between, Sable, uh, between Abel and Seth. Genesis 5 said they had other kids at some point. We just don't know when. But whether they were barren or not, you can imagine their sorrow and their grief. Losing paradise likely felt a whole lot worse after losing Abel. Gone not only was the daily communing with the Lord, but now the daily communing with their sons. And for anyone who has lost a loved one, a child, a spouse, sibling, friend, whoever, or you know relational strain, you understand this kind of pain. And yet the Lord restores joy. He brings joy through Seth. Even in the act of naming Seth, we see the Lord's goodness. If you look down at Genesis 5, chapter 2, you see that naming is what the Lord does after creating Adam. In goodness, he creates Adam, and in his goodness, he names Adam. And the rest of the chapter then consists of Adam's descendants creating and naming, all of it pointing back to the Lord, who is abundantly good. Compare that to Cain, where the Lord is altogether absent. He's not even mentioned. And names are thrown in as an afterthought. Kind of a, oh, by the way, his name happened to be this. No, Seth is proof of James 1.17 that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. 
So whatever season you are in, rest assured that the Lord is good. Even in this season of pandemics and disorder and chaos, the Lord is good. He is providing in ways that we cannot even see. Just in our church alone, we've seen babies, we've seen marriages, we've seen new jobs, we've seen sustained jobs. We've seen health, healing, recoveries. We've seen a deeper dependence and trust on the Lord. A lessening of self-reliance. We've seen new members growing fellowship, a deeper love. And these are but just some of the good gifts and perfect gifts that God has shown us in the midst of what has been a very difficult and undesirable season. But greater still, the Lord demonstrates his goodness in the ongoing fulfillment of his promises. Verse 25 goes on. She bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring. Through Seth, God provides a substitute for Abel, whom Adam and Eve expected to be the serpent crusher. This rings loudly when Eve says, he has provided me another offspring. It points directly back to the promise in Genesis 3.15, where the Lord said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. With the arrival of said, Adam and Eve are trusting that God is actively fulfilling his promise. Eve declares that God has set Seth. Notice the similar sounds. As the seed. Again, looking at Cain, Adam and Eve have good reason to despair. The serpent appears to be winning as corruption grows and bears more and more depravity. The heel certainly seems to be bruised. But Seth's arrival proclaims something contrary. God has not forsaken or abandoned his people. He is working and he is good. Our souls desperately need this reminder too. For some, your personal world is filled with the same kind of hopelessness and sorrow. It may be over the loss or the struggle to have children. It may be over wayward children. It may be a lasting health struggle or something completely different. It may be something known to very few, if any. For others, the world's condition has filled you with sorrow and despair. The world's depravity is heart-wrenching, possibly even having touched you in a personal way. The outcome of another election has some of us feeling fearful and anxious. And this seemingly never-ending virus is maddening. But wherever you find yourself this morning, the goodness of the Lord is not absent. It has not been withdrawn from his people. And if you are not convinced, follow the line of Seth. It is as much a testament to the Lord's goodness as it is, as it is a family tree. If you follow it, you'll see another Enoch will come. Except this Enoch is one who will picture what it looks like to faithfully walk with the Lord and be welcomed into his presence. You'll see Noah, who points to the way that the Lord provides salvation in the midst of judgment. 
You'll see Abraham, the one who believed and it was credited to him as righteousness, and his sons, Isaac and Jacob, rounding out the patriarchs. Fast forward a little bit further away from Genesis and you'll find David, the greatest king of Israel, sitting on the throne as a son of Seth. But greater still, you will find Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. Luke's genealogy in Luke chapter 4 ends with Jesus, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. While Adam and Eve may not have been able to see that far down the, down the road, they trusted and rested in God's goodness and faithfulness. Seth was the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise. We have the blessing and the privilege, though, of knowing the end of the line. Unlike Adam and Eve, we're not waiting for the serpent crusher to arrive. He has arrived. And he has crushed the head of the serpent. On the cross, Jesus paid in full the penalty for the horrific and pervasive sin of God's people. Your sin, my sin. Because the truth is, in our natural state, we fall right in with the line of Cain. But through this offspring, Jesus Christ, the power of sin, death, and Satan have been undone. And his resurrection is the proof. It is the guarantee that the corruption and depravity of this world is not the end of the story. There will be redemption. There will be a day of no more sin, injustice, evil, and sorrow. Because God is good. And he is faithful. And so if you struggle even this morning to find the goodness of God in our day, in your experience, look to the line of Seth. It will lead you to the cross as God intended when he appointed Seth. God is good. You can be absolutely sure of it. He has provided. The serpent has been crushed. Glory is coming, as Tim reminded us last week. And then in response to this, in response to the world that is growing and the goodness of God, we see his people are gathering. The family of God here in Genesis 4 begins meeting together to worship and seek the Lord. Now this is where I'll admit the analogy of my family dinners falls short. Those nightly dinners were not uniquely specific to my family. I know for sure other families were doing the same. For the family line of Seth in Genesis 4, though, this gathering was entirely unique. It was unlike anything happening in that day. Cain's family was gathering in cities as signs to their own strength, to their own glory, to their own pride. They gathered in the name of progress and perversion. But Seth's line we see first, they gather in weakness. It says, to Seth also was born a son. And he called his name Enosh. You may not be familiar with Enosh, but it is the Hebrew word for man or mankind. In a way, Enosh shares a similar name as his father, Adam, man. But throughout the Old Testament, if you look, the word Enosh is also used to emphasize man's frailty and insignificance. Psalm 103, verses 15 through 16 is one of those examples. It says, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. 
and its place knows it no more. In a way, Seth names his son Weakness. Again, compare this to the line of Cain, where those names are celebrating Cain and his family's greatness. But with the arrival of the man they call Weakness, the family of God now begins to meet together. At that time is literally meaning then. Enosh comes, then the people gather. We witness how from the very beginning the people of God have been gathering together, not in strength, not in power, but in weakness, in frailty, in seemingly insignificance. And if you need proof, just look at the book of Acts. Those men and women were far from spectacular. Many were uneducated, far from eloquent. And yet in gathering together, the Spirit worked through them in great power to advance the gospel, grow the church, and add to their number daily. And we are no different. Sunday in and Sunday out, we gather together in weakness. In some cases, our weakness is obvious. We are physically sick, tired. Some of us are recovering. Some of us are aging. Even these heavily disputed masks emphasize our weakness. In other cases, our weakness is private or hidden. We all have sin we're wrestling against. We all have doubts, insecurities, and fears. And even if we appear to be strong and capable, underneath we are all plagued with weakness. We cannot fix ourselves. We cannot help ourselves or get ourselves to a point of strength. And this is exactly how God created us. As those psalms declared, we are dust and we are like grass. We are not world beaters. And as this year has proven, despite all of our strengths and man's ability, this world remains plagued by sin, sickness, evil, and death. We gather together in weakness because weakness, because weak is what we are, and in gathering together, to worship, we find strength. But it is in their weakness, though, we see that Seth's line gathers to worship. It says, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Calvin wrote that in this meeting of Seth's family, we see the face of the church begin to distinctly appear. You may be wondering if it's a bit of a stretch to say this was a formal worship gathering. It sounds more like a prayer service or calling out. To that I would respond, is not prayer a critical part of our worship service? To this point, we've already offered five prayers. But even the word to call, which certainly includes invocation, has a further reach when it's joined with the name of the Lord. It means, as one commentator states, to make petition and give And with Cain and Abel back in the beginning of this chapter, we know that sacrifices were already being made. Now the corporate element of prayer and praise is being added. And Abraham, later on in Genesis chapter 12, would add altar worship when the same language says he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. It's pretty hard to argue against this gathering of Seth's family being a gathering of worship. Moses even uses the covenantal name of the Lord to give final proof that this is what is taking place. 
And Matthew Henry, in his commentary, puts it bluntly. Now man began to worship, not only in their closets and families, but in public, solemn assemblies. We should find this pre-flood gathering of God's people greatly comforting and encouraging. It has set the precedent of what will unfold over the generations. And it also serves as a small precursor to what will take place at the very end where we read in Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. This is the history, the present, and the future of the people of God, worshiping together. And here is where I hope to be gentle, but also clear. Our current situation, along with our very nature, has challenged the formal gathering of God's people. On the one hand, there are many in our congregation who cannot and should not be gathering physically with the body. You are either health compromised or high risk or unable to for valid reasons such as being a medical professional or caring for sick loved ones. And for you, this season has been especially difficult. You feel lonely and isolated. You are tired. You are weary. You want desperately to be here with the people of God, worshiping together. For this group, I pray that the ability to gather, even though online isn't ideal, has been a life-giving balm for your soul. And that opportunities to worship, to fellowship, have also arisen for you and your family. I pray that God, by His Spirit, has ministered to you and your family as you have gathered in this very different and far from ideal manner. I pray that in a way you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, even in the difficult and challenging seven plus months we've been going on. But to those not in this category, I say this with loving urgency, come back to church. Worship here with your brothers and sisters. I don't mean join the live stream, as good and as a blessing as it has been. I do not mean, you might get some flack for this, but wait until the masks go away or church returns to what you think is normal. Fill the seats and worship. Your soul needs it more than you think it does. You do not need an extra day to catch up on sleep or to sit on the couch. You don't need another morning at the lake or the mountains or for a cup of coffee in your pajamas. You don't need church whenever it fits your schedule or it's convenient for you. You need to gather with the body. You need the true nourishment that comes with sitting under the preaching of God's word. You need the true rest that is found in physically gathering to worship your creator, your savior, and your Lord. You need strength. We all need strength. And this struggle is not isolated to this time and this or any particular person. This is all of our struggle to faithfully gather together 
in a world that is constantly changing and telling us we need not gather. As one pastor wrote just this past week, we all need help to fight against the temptation of spiritual lethargy. Comfort, laziness, and fear are sort of teaming up at the moment to assault the souls of God's people. It teamed up to assault the souls of God's people way back in Genesis 4. And they gathered together in weakness to worship their abundantly good God. Our world is raging, pandemic and election aside. It is discouraging, it is wearisome. It is a threat to our souls and we are weak. Yet God is still good. He has not abandoned his people. He has not forsaken his covenant promises. So let us be faithful in gathering together to worship. Let us follow the example of God's people way back in the beginning of Genesis 4. That the gathering of God's people does not change even as the world does. I'm not sure if there needs to be a formal conclusion here. But while my dinners with my family that we shared were enjoyable and memorable, they don't hold a candle to this gathering in Genesis chapter 4, or this gathering here this morning, week in and week out of God's people to worship. Those gatherings around the table were critical to my family's health and relationship as a family. Our gatherings are critical and essential for our spiritual health and strength, for each of us individually and all of us corporately. We need to worship together. We should want and yearn and desire to worship together. It should be the highest priority no matter what stage of life or condition we find ourselves. So if anything, I'll close by reading the word of God from Hebrews, where it says, And let us consider how to stir one another toward love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us pray. Father God, we come to you in weakness. We come to you in a world that is raging in positive developments, but also in growing depravity. And God, we admit that in and of ourselves, we would rather not be here. But you have called us to come, to gather, to worship, to be fed, to be nourished, to rest by worshiping you. I pray that we would do that faithfully as a body, that we would commit continually in these days and in the days and the years ahead to gathering together to worship your name. And may you grow us in number, grow us in maturity as we do by your spirit, because that is what you have promised. Would you be glorified, we pray in Christ's name.